after singing, you know, in joy and celebration this morning, the things that we know and the things that we believe, the things that we've experienced that the Lord has done for us and through us. All of those things are part of our normal music time here at Faith, and we celebrate those things, and we also want to give us an opportunity to respond to it. So knowing what we know, saying what we've said, experiencing what we've experienced, what do we give back to the Lord? And so you'll notice that pretty much every single week we'll have an opportunity for our people to be able to go, okay, Lord, here's what you have back because of all that you've done, all that you've given to me. What is our response to the greatness of God? What is our response to his patience? What is our response to his guidance on us? And so to be able to say it is well, you know, it swallows a few things, doesn't it? We can say it because the song was moving us to and the melody was beautiful and things. And so we can sing it. But when a push comes to shove on a Monday morning or a Thursday morning or a Saturday night or whenever uh, drama hits us or whenever difficulty comes, It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of faith to be able to say to the Lord, it is well. Whatever is happening to me or to those that I love or to those that I'm surrounded, it is well. Not that everything seems good, but that it is well because we know who has us. This is uh, a necessary component to what we're going to talk about this morning, this, this accepting of God's radical invasion in our lives through his grace and his mercy, but in his justice to come into our lives and to set a table that is pleasing to him rather than just what's satisfying to you and I on the surface. And I think about it like the age old illustration of learning to ride a bike. We say this all the time, right? But there's this process of learning to ride a bike that incorporates a lot of these elements that we're going to talk about this morning because we're often inspired to ride a bike by some cool kid on the block or our older siblings or something like that. We see them riding in freedom with the wind in their hair and we say, that's going to be me. You know, at four and a half years old, I'm going to do that. And we're probably younger these days. I don't know. Kids are all advancing. If there's an app for it to teach them how to ride a bike, they'll have it down by their their third birthday or something. But uh, to be able to say that that's going to be, we were inspired to do that. Oftentimes our parents, or in our case, because we started off with the first three and we taught them how to ride a bike. And then I said, okay, I'm out. You got older siblings now to teach you how to do this. I've, I've got other, there's six more coming. I can't do, I, I'm available for teaching how to drive cars. <laughs> and they keep coming one after the next. And my hair gets grayer and grayer and grayer. And I'm like, I just want a year break, but we've done this to ourselves. But, uh, you know, a parent, a parent will take the back of that seat often and kind of hold. And what does a kid always do? You can let go now. You can let go now. You can let go now. It's that desire to just free me from this. Stop restricting me. Stop being the, the governor, you know, and how long do I have to have these training wheels on for? These restrictions in our lives, these things that kind of invade our personal sense of freedom or, or what we want to accomplish and that all of these things are kind of restricted, but, but we want that inspiration. We want someone to do it, uh, before us so that we can follow it. We want that nurturing. We want that parent in our ear. You're doing it. You're doing it. You got it. You got it. And then when it doesn't go so well and the blood is coming from our kneecaps and our elbows, we want that parent to kind of hold us and say, you're going to be okay. You're going to heal from this. You'll be riding by tomorrow afternoon. 
We want that assurance. That's the fun part of receiving God's provision in our life. That's the part that millions and millions of books are sold about talking about. That's who God is. And we love to hear that. He's the inspiration. He's the one holding the seat, letting it go. You're doing it. And God sends us on our way to live our lives of freedom and fulfillment. He's also the one that coddles us and kisses our boo-boos and holds us tight when we've failed. And, And you know what? Honestly, God is elements of all of those things in his own way, according to God's word. But he is elements of all those things. But what comes with that is that we also need someone to correct us. We need somebody to say, now, I know you think you've got this, but you need a few elbow pads. You need some helmet uh, gear. You need some some protection. You need those training wheels a little bit longer because I, I know you're wobbly on those wheels. You're not ready for this. Or, you know, that kind of correction that says um, uh, you need to stay away from the traffic because while you're learning in the driveway, there's cars coming up and down the street. You got to stay away. That correction is a little bit like, oh, come on, dad. I'm ready to do this. Why are you holding me back? Why are you holding on to the seat so long? Can't you just let me go and experience this? God often comes with a challenge in our life, a, 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 a response that isn't just affirming everything, everything that we, that we want to believe or everything that we want to experience. We also need a breaking of our own wills. I think I can handle the traffic. I, I don't think I need to be held back at the end of this driveway. I can, I'll look for cars. I'll look for, we need this kind of like, you don't answer to you. You need, you answer to me as a parent. We step in and we say, I know you think that, but I'm sorry, my house, my rules, right? At some point you put this barrier that says, I know you want this freedom, but you're not ready for it. And I'm not allowing it as a good parent. I couldn't allow it. This correction is often invasive. And that's the part where we go, it's well. I'm not sure I believe that, but I want to be able to acknowledge, Lord, it's well. that This this restriction you're putting on me, this geeky helmet I got to wear, these elbow pads that I'm not, I'm not really fond of, and don't go here and don't go, yeah, all right, well, I don't know if I really want this. It's the maturity of the saints that come in and say, but it's well with my soul. You have encouraged me in these things because you're keeping me safe, you're keeping me healthy, you're keeping me alive. This is what God does. And he grows us up. He leads us towards a freedom that the wind eventually goes in our hair. It's because we know where to go. We know how to be. We know who we are in him. The writer of Hebrews kind of solidifies a lot of this for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, you have your Bibles with you. If not, we have the scripture up here on the screen. Uh, in verse 5, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges, harsh word, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we kicked and screamed against them. We hated them and now we've never called them back. We've never said, thank you, dad. We, we can't believe they did that to us. No, he says, we respected them. I pause <laughs> to sink that into our modern generation of child raisers. 
Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Thank you. I'm glad that he acknowledges that this isn't fun, that the correction of the Lord doesn't feel good immediately, that it does take some growth and some maturity and some faith to accept and to acknowledge. It seems not to be joyful, but it seems to be sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is the next stop in our series of what makes a church healthy. And intermittently throughout the year, we've kind of stopped in on a few topics that it would seem that the Bible wants a church to be considerate of and to be faithful to in order to maintain its health, in order to be prepared to endure the onslaught that the world is preparing to give the church. And so in order for a church to be truly healthy, to be solid at its core and to be faithful and glorifying to God, it needs to practice several things. And our next stop along the way is this idea of discipline, of correction, there are so many today that operate the church in this false understanding that we are a judgment-free zone. As Matthew 7 would indicate it, but if you were to cut the nose off the passage, you would say, see, Jesus said, don't judge. And we've taught often on this subject here at Faith because it's a common, common phrase that's being passed around. Whenever you hear, hey, you're not supposed to judge, what that means is don't judge me. It doesn't mean I can't make a judgment about you because I can do that all day long and I'll share them on Facebook as often as I come up with them. <laughs> it's don't judge me. Get out of my space. Give me some room. Jesus even said, don't judge. The balance of that passage and others that we're going to see, though we don't have time to exposit them all this morning. The balance of that passage is that you and I, as faithful children of God, as we grow in our understanding of who God is and what his holiness is, we exercise discernment. Yes, we do exercise judgment on what is right and what is wrong. The balance of that passage is be careful how you go about doing it because that same uh, force of judgment is due you based on your actions, based on your faithfulness or lack thereof. Be careful how you judge. And that's really what we want to talk about this morning. When we're talking about church discipline, we're talking about the, the, um, the practice of an organization or an organism of a church to, um, to mature the body to become more like Christ. And there's necessary steps that go into place. And so there's a right order in which we go about correcting the sins of the people of a church. And Jesus addresses this for us in Matthew 18, perhaps the most um, popular um, treatment of what we would call church discipline is in Matthew 18. And again, we have several passages to, to kind of fly through here. We're just whetting our appetite and setting the tone for what the church is called to, and then Lord willing at the end of our time, talk very specifically, but briefly about what faith as a church um, practices. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17, Jesus said, if your brother sins, let me stop there for a moment, sins, not if your brother or sister in Christ offends you because they have a different personality or a different preference than you. 
But if you understand the word of God, if you know what sin is and what it looks like, and if your brother has uh, um, uh, exercised or, or done that sin, then you go and show him his fault. I've already touched on the Facebook world that says preferences and things I just disagree with and you're crazy for thinking that. I can spew that all over the place with no consequence. Jesus says if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. This is not here by accident. Jesus knew that the more mature, the safest thing for both parties involved is to wait patiently, to exercise true discernment, better judgment to say, if this is truly sin and it has been done against me or it's sin that's harming that person, I'm going to wait for my chance. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to say, come here. I got to talk to you about something but I'm going to pull you away from the crowd. I'm going to pull you out of the public eye so it's not skewering you and embarrassing you in front of people. But but today, I mean, this is 2018 and we're just like, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You've offended me. And we just think we can yell and just ex- expose everybody in public rather than that that public decency of pulling somebody away and say, hey, look, for your sake and for the sake of others looking, let me just talk to you about this one-on-one. Jesus says, show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, job done. You are all set. Let it go. Move on. You've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. For muscle, no. Although sometimes a show of force a little bit is not unnecessary. He says instead, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. You see, there's a little bit of a legal process that's happening here. And there's some wisdom that Jesus is spelling out saying, look, you're going to eventually, if this person is truly rebellious and shutting you down and blocking you out, you're going to have to be preparing a bit of a case. And we'll talk about why in a moment, but you're going to have to be preparing a bit of a case. So go through these steps and get your facts straight. Have people, credible people with you that others would believe to be able to go with you to say, yep, they're not just, you know, yelling about he said, she said, this really did happen. He really is, or she really is shutting me down. will not hear anything about what the Lord has for them or what the Bible says. So it's going nowhere. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the worst among you. Let him be like an unbeliever is what the Gentile word is being used for, for the Jewish listener. Be to you like an unbeliever and even worse, not really, but to underscore the point of the tone of the day, what people really despised in their society was the tax collector. So if he's refusing over and over and over again, you've gone through these steps and still says, I don't care. Not willing to change, don't want to hear it. At that point, you say, all of your presentation to me is that of an unbeliever. All of your presentation to me is somebody who's trying to get away with something kind of wicked and evil. I have to treat you categorically as somebody. I'm not making a judgment on their soul. I don't have to say you've lost your salvation, which we don't believe from scripture. I'm not having to make a judgment on you or never uh, born again when you prayed that one prayer in youth camp or something. I don't have to think about any of those things. But the presentation you're making to me today is that you're acting like a trickster, a huckster, uh, doing all these shenanigans, and you are faking it in the faith. I need to treat you as such. So we'll talk about how to treat that person. 
That is the right order that Jesus spells out for us. Again, we, we move forward in the scriptures because the Bible deals with this subject over and over again. Though this no, should not be what the church always has to be engulfed in, it is something that we need to be ready to practice. And so it comes up over and over again. First Corinthians chapter five, Paul starts off, you know, we always like to pause and say this when we're talking about first Corinthians, because Paul is talking to a church that was really like brewing a stew of, of mistake and error and sin. And they were trampling on the grace of God so much that, that Paul was just dealing, especially in this first letter, uh, offense after offense, after offense to try to clean them up, straighten them up. And so, uh, this is no, uh, no different in chapter five. He says this, he goes, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that somebody has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit. Now here's our balance to the Matthew seven statements that we made have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Paul's saying, I don't even need to be on the scene and I know this is terrible. I don't even need to be there and I'm about to spell out to you what you need to do to this guy. And 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 Paul is sounding awfully judgy in this, isn't he? He hasn't collected all the facts. He hasn't been on the ground. So, so we like to think, well, you weren't there. You didn't hear the things he said. You didn't hear his explanation for his sinful behavior. You didn't understand the circumstances in which they were in. Paul says that the act is so heinous. It is so uh, against the, the, uh, the glory of God that I can judge this as being wicked and wrong and needing to be dealt with without even showing up and putting on all those miles. He says in verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not in the tone of Paul, not in the, well, Paul was raised as a religious zealot. So these kinds of things were never mentioned in his, he's not personally offended more than he is walking in the authority of Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to get ready for the harshness here, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Paul, tone it down, dude. You act as though he was doing this with your own mom. You act as though this was something that was just showing up at your doorstep and you're so thoroughly disgusted. How could you come to such a giant conclusion and then speak in such harsh tones that you would deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? And here is the grace and the mercy that is that is added to it that every church should conduct these things in so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul had his eye on the greater good. Yes, I'm going to deal harshly up front with the sin and the behavior of the individual so that that individual has the best chance, to use a theological word, chance, of being restored and brought back into the grace of God. Paul, though he's dealing harshly and his tones are ugly and they're definitely not PC for today, never takes his eye off of what is best for the one committing the sin. And, and we drive by this definition a lot and I just want to keep uh, reiterating it that love is doing the best for the one that you are trying to love. The best. Not what feels the most rewarding to the love giver. Not what is immediately received as drippy gooeyness from the one being loved. He just loves me. I know it. 
Instead, it's doing the best for the object of that love. And this is what Paul is doing. He has an eye towards the greater good for the individual, and he has an eye towards the greater good for the assembly. He started off in verse one by saying, there is immorality and wickedness being reported about you that isn't even mentioned out there. He's trying to get them to see your reputation isn't holding up so well. There are others out there that would be chagrined at the ugliness of the sin in which you are committing. Verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. And, and I thought about this as I was, I was looking at this. I was like, but that would be a great name for a church. Uh, new lump evangelical free church or new lump Baptist or whatever. You know, if we're being true to this, we want to be a new lump. That's going to be the vision statement of churches in the decades to come. We are out to be new lumps for Christ. Our Passover also has been sacrificed. Verse eight, as we quickly try to move through this. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is interesting. He says in verse nine, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. He says, I've already covered this, but I have to clarify some things for you because you're getting it all mixed up. He said, I've already written about don't hang out with immoral people. Don't, don't, uh, don't feed them and all this kind of stuff. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. It's a pretty strong statement or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. Then you would have to go out of the world. You wouldn't have anybody to associate with then he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You know, Paul's got the same tone that Jesus does when dealing with some of these things. And I, I find it interesting. I don't think we, some, we sometimes don't slow down and park on this concept enough. When is Jesus kind of nasty and ugly? When he's talking about the ones who should know better and claim they do and are living wickedly. How is Paul dealing with this group of people? He says, I'm not asking you to go out and judge the people that are out there. God will judge all them. He goes, I don't expect anything from uh, unga- the ungodly. I don't expect them. I had a pastor in, in days gone by that clarified this for me. He says, I don't expect any fr- anything from the unsaved but to shake their fist at God. That's what I expect them to do. He's not advising them to do it. He's not saying that they should or anything. He says, that's what I expect those that have no allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ to do. But what Paul is saying here is that you are different. You are the assembly. You are the ones that the gospel has been given to. You're the one who's had the opportunity to respond. You're the ones that have walked the aisles. You're the ones that have been dunked in the baptism waters. You're the one that are taking communion once a month. You're doing all these things. And yet you're carrying out a sin that's even more wicked than those that would, that would be found outside of the church. He says, don't hang out with any so-called brother. Because it's ooey and we can't get any on us. Paul doesn't seem to be too affected by that. They certainly are not affected by it. He wants to clarify what he meant. But only to make a heavier point. He says, I didn't mean at all the immoral people of the world. Even though they thought he meant the people out there. It's almost like a free ticket. Like, oh, Paul said we don't have to hang out with immoral people. Cool. Let's close the door. Let's not get any on us. Right. 
He says they were still being arrogant and thinking that the sin that they allowed in here was somehow okay. And I can't explain this. I can't explain why we sometimes think that it makes us overly compassionate or trendy or whatever to turn a blind eye to the sin, the practicing habitual sin of the so-called saints. I don't know why churches get that mindset. We need to pray that we are protected from ever getting that mindset that somehow we'll look PC and trendy out there to the world if we just turn a blind eye to sin. Paul is saying you're treating the arrogant with compassion and the spiritually poor and needy with neglect. The goal of church discipline is not to keep sinners out of the church so we don't get any on us, but to keep those that claim to be saints or believers pure and accountable, not sinless, but sinning less, not practicing that habitual sin and us turning a blind eye saying, well, we're all sinners. I mean, we get it, right? That's the right tone to have when dealing with this compassion for the individual, but it ends at a point to not, uh, if you don't take action, your compassion has run out. You've taken your eye off of what's best for the sinner. You've taken your eye off what's best for the assembly. And we also see from the scriptures that we need to have the right goal. I'm going to just share this one verse from Galatians six. Verse one that says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, there's a qualifier there, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. What is the goal in our discipline? Our goal is restoration. We're not trying to thin the herd out so that we hope people leave. Man, if I find out someone's messing up and they're wicked, we're chasing them out. It'd be great be awesome to see just less and less people here. Why? Because we're pure. We're the remnant. We're sticking it out. We hear all those kinds of things. Like somehow we're, we're stepping on the gas pedal to thin the herd out rather than being reminded of what, of what God's grace is available to all of us. Because in that we are still sinners, we receive his grace every single day. Our goal is restoration. Another part of scripture that we read earlier talked about that setting bones, that the correction of God, the discipline is to heal us, to set us straight, to put us right. The goal isn't to put them out, it's to win them back. Our tone is also being addressed here as we pause for a second in a spirit of gentleness. How do we, I mean, how do we seriously practice gentleness when we're offended? Let's be honest. I mean, a lot of sin really offends us. And, and it's not because we're wrong. It's not because sin shouldn't offend us. It's not because sin isn't ugly. It's what put our savior on the cross. We shouldn't look at sin and just go, well, you know, everybody does it. So that shouldn't bother us. In fact, that's part of the problem, right? The longer we go through this world, the more desensitized to the ugliness of sin we get. But how do you and I protect ourselves from looking down from our high horse? How do you and I protect ourselves from saying, I would never do that? You know, that simple phrase of just there, but by the grace of God, go I. Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven me. I can be offended by sin. I can find it ugly and heinous. But the minute I start acting like I'd never do it, that's where I've crossed the line. My tone has changed. My tone is, you need to get out of here because you offend me. Not what you're doing offends God. How do we work this out of your life? How do we get you set straight? There's a goal of prevention. Remember what Paul said, that 
that his spirit may be saved. Ultimately, we're going to, we're going to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. We are trying to prevent the sinner's destruction ultimately. But there's also a, a subtle warning here in Galatians 6, 1 that, that prevents the restorers falling as well. It says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And again, without the time to go into all that this means, let's just look at that on the surface and say what, what, what Paul is telling the Galatian church is before you engage in the you shouldn't do this conversation, check yourself. Check yourself on all fronts. Am I walking purely before the Lord? If someone were to come and have this conversation with me, how would I receive it? How am I praying this person receives it? And then, and then also, um, you know, sometimes we get involved with, this is a real tricky area with combating sin is sometimes you get a little too close to it and it starts to make sense to you. Starts to tease and tempt a little bit. And they start to share their way kind of with that split tongue sort of, it's okay. We all do this. <laughs> and, and we kind of get drawn in going, oh, I didn't really think of it that way before. So Paul's telling this church in Galatia, he's saying, Prepare yourselves, examine yourselves, be ready to engage so that the restorer, the one who is going with the right motives is actually prepared for the conversation. So let's conclude this. We've got just several minutes left before we break up our guys and our girls and our different places and stuff. That was, I'm sorry, I missed the beginning, but we did talk about that. Um, and so uh, here's, here's how we're going to wrap this up. Why should we bother in this awkward and uncomfortable task, we are going to admit to you that though I might be able to stand up here and say, okay, this is what the Bible says about this. And we need to just go and deal with this, that it tears our guts up just as much as it would you. Now, there are some people that love confrontation. Some of you are out there and I hide from you <laughs> because it's like, I, don't, I haven't woken up this morning unless I can tell somebody where to go and where to be, right? Just kind of like, hey, you get out of my face. You know, sometimes we're, we're coming from a position of loving confrontation, but for the most, most part, most of us are like, man, if I could just get the smoothest, you know, path of least resistance from point A to point B in my life, life would be good. No frustration, nobody hating me, no one being uh, uncomfortable towards me or anything like that. So why would we bother in this? Well, we've already said it's for the good of the individual. If we really love people as we are called to, we will do this. It's for the good of others because when you see somebody else being brought through a process of church discipline or having their sin confronted, especially if it gets to the level that Jesus says it might, the rest of us looking on go, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to walk down that path. doesn't look like it's very fun for them. So it creates a warning for other people. But it's also good for the church. We, we engage in this because often it's like a medicine for us. It sets us right. It helps us examine ourselves as we're going through this. We're not just pointing out the sin of others who has a little speck in their eye while we have a giant log in our eye. We're going to balance that out with, if I'm going to judge rightly, I need to be willing to judge myself. And we as a church experience that as we go through this. A couple of other reasons why we would engage, I think, can be found in 1 Peter 2. In verse 12, Peter says, live good, such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So another reason for us to do this is for the distinction of the church, for our corporate witness, for, for the world that's looking out or maybe walking through our doors to say, this is different here. 
And, and I don't think just for the superficial reasons that, that we've had emphasized so much throughout, you know, American church history, which is just because we're going to dress different and listen to different music without drum beats and everything like that. I don't know if any of you grown up in that system, but some of us have. And there is a superficial application. We just need to look different from the world. But really, if we are following Christ and pursuing holiness and we are able to say it is well with my soul that this correction has invaded my life and that I answer to a higher authority who loves me, has created me, and knows what's best for me, that I approach my marriage for the good of my spouse rather than what I can get out of it, that I raise my kids in a balance that understands that they serve the Lord more than they meet my needs or I'm there to provide for all of their happy wishes, that that I actually have the the strength and the wherewithal in Christ to respond to my addictions and to grow out of them, that I actually can, can work with other people in ways that, that um, build them up instead of make me number one, and all of these things that would be perfect distinctions from us and the world. That if you want to talk about a church growth strategy, that those distinctions actually become attractive to people, and when they come, they see us living it out. And so one of the major reasons why we would incorporate this area of practice like we have, like we would the other things we've talked about is for the distinction of the church so that you and I will be truly different from the hopelessness that we've seen in the world, the hopelessness that you and I have been saved from. And then he also emphasizes at the end of that verse so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Obviously, we want to do this for God's fame. We want to do this for his glory. So how do we as a church do that? I can rest, rest assured we do it imperfectly. How do we exercise church discipline? Sometimes too quickly, sometimes too late. Sometimes with energy and gusto, sometimes with fear and trepidation. It's uncomfortable for us too, and we're always practicing, but we don't do it alone. Our pastors and elders strategize together. We pray towards. Sometimes it happens in the chairs or in the small groups or in the hub or in the classrooms before it even comes to a leadership level because its people are engaged in this uh, uncomfortable practice. We try to do these things patiently. We don't have a church Gestapo going out there and sniffing out sinful behavior, finding out what all of you are up to. But we patiently wait that if the Lord has us uh, needing to know things that are going on in our assembly, he'll bring it to our attention. And we try not to block our ears when people are trying to tell us. We lovingly, gently pursue as we're being led of the spirit, hopefully and prayerfully. We pursue the sinner seeking restoration first. We will address things publicly where necessary. We even will address it with our neighboring churches. You've heard us talk about this a lot lately. If somebody leaves faith in a huff and they won't let us go through the good practice of discipline, they won't give us audience to come and help restore them. Instead, they're like, you guys are narrow-minded. I'm sick and tired of this. There's plenty of churches to choose from, you know. Well, if we find out where you might be going, we'll try to notify that pastor and say, our problem has become yours. You're welcome. (laughs) And we have this tally up there to see how many headaches. No, I'm just kidding. We also try to give strong warnings at our communion time. We do communion here once a month, not because the Bible says to, but because that's the practice we've gotten into. And each time we like to share that warning that Paul gives when he's, when he's talking about how the Lord exercised communion, when he says that if you take this unworthily, that's why there are many sick and dying among you, that there is a strong warning that taking the sacrament of communion shouldn't be done lightly, not while we're harboring sin, not while we're walking in it. 
So what's your responsibility? That's what the leadership's trying to do. Um, and I've already confessed to you that we don't do it 100% perfectly each time. So keep praying for us. What's your responsibility? Well, just stop sinning. Just stop doing it. If you stop it, we won't have to chase it down. That would be great if you could just do that for us. It'd be awesome. We'd love to just sing praises with you all the time. Pray for your leadership to deal with sin in the context of grace, but for the glory of God and the health of this body first and foremost. Humbly bear your brothers and sisters' burdens and see their sin as a problem for them even more so than it might be a problem for you. It's not just an offense or an inconvenience to you. Yes, sin does cause destruction for the people around it. There are usually innocent bystanders watching sin take place and experiencing it on themselves. And so we need to be chasing that down with justice, but also understand that this person, this sinner is causing harm between their relationship and the Lord too. And we need to seek restoration for that. Go to them with a spirit of gentleness and with a goal of restoration. If you and I are doing this as often as we can, as imperfectly as it may be, the Lord will bless our faithfulness. We will have uh, a presence of health here and uh, uh, the ability, I think, to weather the storms of life that are going to hit this church in the future. Uh, would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer. We're going to uh, ask the, the, the women to stay behind. Okay. So um, if you're if you're new to faith, what we do here at Advanced Sunday, this is just once a month for us, third Sunday, is we ask our ladies to stay in this room here. Michelle Kenny comes and addresses you directly. We have a special guest this morning that she'll be introdu- introducing you to. Our men go out into our cafeteria area sort of thing, our hub out there, and uh, and hang out. So the best thing you could do for both these leaders is to get in your place as quickly as possible and then like bring the chatter down, especially the guys out there. It carries a lot out there. It's hard for us to get your attention. We're going to close in prayer and we're going to dismiss to our locations. Lord, we thank you, God, for all that you do. We thank you, Lord, for using imperfect people to carry out your work. Lord, it's amazing that people that are so full of sin and offense towards you are tasked with the burden of straightening out the sinner. But Lord, yet you grow us piece by piece and you do it faithfully so that we can continue to reflect your goodness in our life. We thank you for it. Send us out, Lord, in your grace. Send us out with a sensitivity, but there, by the grace of God, go I. And help us, Lord, to, to treat the, the failures of others as things that, uh, that break them down, first and foremost, before you. May we carry those burdens with them. In Jesus' name, amen.